Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick, and today's guest is Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who's a senior research scientist at the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree from MIT in biology and a PhD in electrical engineering and computer science also from MIT. Her recent research interests are on the role of nutritional deficiencies and toxic chemicals in disease with a focus on the mineral sulfur and the herbicide glyphosate. She's the author of a new book published by Chelsea Green titled Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment. Hi, Dr. Stephanie. Hi there. I'm so happy to to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for our conversation and to really get into the specifics when it comes to glyphosate and its impact on our body and all sorts of other things that I'm excited to ask you about. But I I first want to ask you, I you know, coming from MIT, I'm curious, I read a little bit about um, your work in the sense that you've created a way to... Uh, computer software, it sounds like something to be able to really be able to tell, like, depending on exposure to these toxic chemicals, what diseases, what chronic illnesses start to happen and at um, what rate. Is that accurate? Or can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I've been saying the last 10 years or so, I've been uh, working strictly in the area of of biology and medicine and uh, health and disease and toxic chemicals in the environment, trying to find correlations. So I've done a lot of uh, data collection of um, the patterns of disease over time. And I've looked at many, many diseases, and I've collected a subset of the ones that I've looked at where the... uh, Prevalence is going up over time in our country, going up dramatically, like diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, autism. You know, there's a big list, right, of diseases that are going up dramatically. So we look at data, medical data from the government, actually. It's it's available on the web, and we just look at trends over time. And then we run the computer software, which is a um, fairly complicated program that runs through and gets all these analyses and looking at correlations. And then we come up with um, the correlation coefficient for the likelihood that the pattern we see could be matching the pattern in the rise of various, you know, toxic chemicals in the environment. And the one that jumps out at you is glyphosate. So that's where I focused in on glyphosate when I really very shortly after I first heard about it. Um, it was a conference where I heard a two-hour presentation by Professor Don Huber, who's a retired uh, expert on plant pathology. And he gave a wonderful lecture where he talked about the microbes in the soil getting messed up by the glyphosate and then the correspondence to the microbes in our gut getting messed up by glyphosate and how that can lead to all kinds of diseases. And now, you know, lately there's lots and lots of papers coming out about gut dysbiosis and all the issues of, um, you know, disease starts in the gut. There's kind of a new mantra to all disease in some sense starts in the gut. The gut is so important. The microbes do so much for us. And we're messing them up with these toxic chemicals that we're exposed to, and in particular, glyphosate. So um, where am I going with that? Did I answer your question? I lost track of what I was saying. Yeah, but that's, yeah, I do analyses. And so glyphosate jumped out. And I collaborated with um, Nancy Swanson. We wrote several papers together. It was quite fun. Uh, finding diseases and then showing the plots and then and then describing our understanding of how glyphosate could be causing so many diseases. People say, well, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. They always come back with that. And then they say, how could one chemical cause so many diseases? 
And I believe I can answer both of those questions. I believe in this case, correlation does mean causation. And I can explain how glyphosate could cause all those diseases. And you have a computer software to prove it as well, basically. But um, I think what you're saying is right. People say when you talk about something such as vaccines and the correlation with autism, I would say, you know, when I explain that to people, I don't, I don't have the data in front of me, but intuitively I can say, well, look at what we're doing to our bodies to begin with. It's not necessarily that one thing, but it's a combination of our polluted air, our food system, and all the toxic chemicals we're exposed to. And then on top of it, we're injecting ourselves with these toxins with aluminum. And then it, from there it goes in, in my opinion, in my what I've seen, that's what I think is really the cause. And I'm curious, I know that I've read that you believe that by 2025, it potentially could even be that half of children born could even have autism if it goes at the exponential rate that it's headed. Is that that's true? Not, Yeah, that's not quite true, although I, I, I know where you got that from, because I did say uh, something about the quarter century mark. I was just kind of estimating when, in a first talk that I gave. Yeah. And then I went back and did the data, did the analysis, and I said, whoops, <laughs> you know, I was off. It wasn't by the quarter century mark. It's really more 2032, but that's still pretty horrible. Mm -hmm. that's another yeah, that's years. not that far. 2032, and then that's uh, out of the children born in that year. So you have to make those two points. Not at 2032, all the kids, but the children yeah. born in 2032 have the uh, have that potential to have autism, 50% of the kids being diagnosed with autism in their lifetime. So you have to kind of qualify it a bit, but that's how the numbers look. Exponential growth, and it's very easy to do that math because you can just plot it on a log scale. You get a straight line, which says it's exponential. You extend the line into the future and you look at the numbers. 2032 is the magic number the kid's born. Because right now, the rates, you know, they're talking about rates, uh, you know, 1 in 50, 1 in 38. I mean, numbers are coming out like that from... Uh, from the government right yeah. now. And, and the, those numbers are 12 year olds. Like when they say one in 54, that's 12 year olds. We don't real people don't realize that those kids are 12 years old right now. The ones that have the one in 54 and wow. it's been going up dramatically. So the kids born today already have a much higher risk than one in 54. You know, and do you think that it's something that they're born with? Or do you think that over time, the load of toxicity is what's causing it? Absolutely the latter. And in fact, you know, we have sort of an emergence of this acquired autism. The kid was perfectly fine, like you say, until they got their MMR vaccine. I started working on the vaccines when I first, I got interested in autism because I saw the rates going up back in 2008, 2007, that kind of time frame. And I immediately started looking at the vaccines. I was quite confident that the vaccines were a causal factor, and particularly the MMR. And in fact, we did research on the VARS database, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And yeah. I started in unbiased, and I was just looking at autism, you know, correlation with other things, um, looking at those data and doing the kinds of analyses that I can do to find these correlations. And it struck me that MMR popped out as having uh, increased risk to autism compared to other vaccines given to kids the same age. You know, and we, we do all the, um, the studies to show that. I mean, we take that data and analyze it that way, and it comes out with MMR having a link to autism. When I first saw that, I was quite surprised because I was thinking aluminum, mercury, you know. Yeah. And MMR has neither aluminum nor mercury. I remember wow. I was doing this. I was fooling around with the database, and I was quite ignorant of things like Wakefield, you know. I, yeah. I, amazingly, I didn't know about Wakefield. And I said, geez, MMR, what's going on there? Then, of course, I started looking at the research literature. I found Wakefield's paper, and I was like, oh, my God, you know? 
And yeah. then, of course, I saw the whole story and I became a complete fan of Wakefield after that. Yeah. I certainly think MMR is a factor for sure. Hey, everyone. I want to tell you about a new airline I recently came across called Aero. I was really intrigued because they're a semi-private airline company that flies to places my husband and I either love going to or have on our bucket list like Aspen, Jackson Hole, Sun Valley, and even places closer to home in Napa and Northern California. However, the fact that a lot of these destinations are in mountain ranges or national parks can sometimes make them difficult to get to and usually involves multiple flights, which makes me hesitant to book with two kids. Then I came across Arrow and realized this could be the solution I've been waiting for, especially during these unpredictable times with COVID. Like I mentioned, Arrow is a semi-private airline that also provides amazing services that honestly for me make it absolutely worth the investment. I love that they use cabin light therapy based on psychology. For example, their custom colored lighting system helps disassociate from motion sickness and their onboarding warm light and soft music helps calm your nervous system. I also love the fact that you can customize your meals and choose healthy options for you and the whole family. Plus, finally, our dog can come with us as they're pet friendly. Another feature I love about not flying with a major airline are their private terminals. Traveling with a toddler and a newborn already adds so much extra time and forethought getting to and from the airport and having this expedited check-in system and also just a little more privacy to get the kids ready for the flight is priceless. If you've got an upcoming trip to an outdoors location and are looking for an alternative to the major airlines, you should definitely check out Aero. And until December 31st, be sure to use code THEFULLEST when booking your next flight to get 10% off your trip, which is a big deal. So enjoy and hopefully you check them out. So let's say the 12-year-olds, for example, 12-year-olds today have one in 54, you said? Something like that. 154 is what we've gotten with this um, analysis at the uh, CDC. I think it's the CDC that's doing that yeah. analysis. And do you think that, let's say today, children born today that have, you know, even higher rates, um, do you believe that eating an all-organic diet, staying away from GMOs and having that sort of lifestyle can make it so that it, the risks or the possibility of having autism or even other chronic conditions goes insanely down? Or do you think that the toxic chemical load in our air and things that we can't control, like the spraying of glyphosate in these different cities and places that we live in, like, for example, these children just, let's say they have an amazing um, organic diet and all the things, but they go to school and yeah. their school has all of their parks or their turf, all these things that are being sprayed. I mean, I'm curious yes. what, yeah, what the data shows in that sense. Yeah, no, it's excellent questions. And I've been, you know, pondering those questions as well. To what extent uh, is the exposure coming from people living near agricultural fields where it's being sprayed, people drinking it in their water supply, people getting it in their food, you know, uh, people using it on their lawn while the kid's playing? What is the primary source of exposure that's leading to things like autism? And I don't know the answer. My instinct says that the food may be the worst uh, source because you're, you know, you're ingesting it, you're, you're eating it, it's going into your body, it's integrating into your uh, proteins, as we can talk about later, and messing you up in a big way. So, and of course, the gut, uh, autism is clearly hooked to the gut 
uh, gut problems. That's quite yeah. clear. Many, many of the kids suffer from gut problems. So that points to food, you know, I mean, maybe water, but water, I think I was really happy when I found out, you know, realized that the chlorine, they typically use chlorine to treat the water in the water mm -hmm. treatment plants. They use chlorine. Mm -hmm. And chlorine actually breaks down glyphosate non-enzymatically. They're using it to kill the microbes, you know, to keep Whoa. the water safe. But they're yeah. also killing the glyphosate, which is really, really fortunate. I was so happy when I saw that. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I think maybe the water is not um, one of the most important factors. And, of course, people have a well. People have a well. They're living near a farm. You know, they could have a lot of glyphosate in their water. But for the most part, I think... Um, I think the the worst problem is the food. Now you have the kids who live right next to the fields where the glyphosate's being applied, so they're clearly going to get um, serious exposure through the air because of that. And those kids probably haven't. In fact, it's shown interestingly enough that kids who live near agricultural fields, like in California, there have been studies I think on both agricultural fields and highways. Kids who live near highways, and in both cases, they've been able to see a correlation between those exposures and increased risk to autism. Wow. And that's interesting, the highways, because I've gotten interested in, uh, lately I've gotten interested in glyphosate from the standpoint of air pollution because of mm -hmm. the biofuels. And I don't know if you've heard any of my interviews about biofuels, because that's no. quite, quite interesting. I only discovered that once COVID hit, you know, once we got COVID-19 and I saw uh, Wuhan and then Lombardy, Italy, I don't know if you remember, and then New York City, those were like major outbreaks of the uh, COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. And Lombardy is a, is a highly polluted uh, air pollution problem in Lombardy and in New York City because it's a big city with all these trucks and stuff growing, you know, a lot yeah. of air pollution. And Wuhan is also, Wuhan has the um, uh, Yangtze River that comes through there. And the Yangtze, they had a, a glyphosate production plant on the Yangtze River in China Wow. I, I found stuff talking about moving it away from the river, but I never actually found, I couldn't find on the web whether it actually got moved away. So whether they're still making glyphosate on the river, but I suspect that river is a major source of glyphosate. So I'm, I'm and, and also the, the biofuels, because I don't know to what extent Wuhan, it's hard to get information out of China. At least I've had trouble, but definitely Lombardy and definitely New York City are big on biofuels. And this means, for example, you take, you grow your crop, Let's say it's wheat, you know, you spray it right before harvest with glyphosate to kill it, you know, so that you can uh, synchronize the, um, the yield. You, 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 get, you get it to all the plants to go to seed at the same time and you increase the yield. And then you sort of kill the crop. It, it's easier to clear the, scrub, the, the, the stubble that's left behind once you harvest. And then you take all that stubble and you throw it on a barge, you take it down to New York City and you run it through a processing plant and out comes biofuel. This is what's going on right now. There's not much talk about it. But I was surprised to see that there's been tremendous growth in this biofuel industry in the last few years, particularly in Europe and in the United States. And these are places that are getting hit really hard by COVID-19. So It makes so much sense because it's technically considered so much more sustainable, right? I mean, we're doing it in the name of sustainability. Exactly. Green, right? Going green. So you're pouring glyphosate into the air when you do that. And so New York City is a leader. You know, they have a... The New York City um, uh, trucks and whatnot are uh, have a um, you know biofuel, uh, biodiesel, and then we have the ethanol. The United States is actually a leader on ethanol, ten percent ethanol in most of our gasoline. That's bioethanol, probably has glyphosate in it. You know, so and then you have even home heating oil. New York City is the only city in the world, I think, that has a requirement of a certain, I think, five percent 
uh, biofuel in your home heating oil if you heat your home by oil. I mean, wow. people don't know these things, you know. I think that glyphosate's getting into the air. It's escaping combustion and evaporating before it reaches combustion and it's getting into the air. And in fact, a study in Brazil showed that. They looked at uh, nanoparticles from the air uh, in the places, in the agricultural areas where they were using glyphosate. They found, you know, glyphosate in the air and the nanoparticles. Maybe that's not surprising. But they also found it in the city. And it was nearly as much in the city as there was in the uh in the agricultural fields, glyphosate in the nanoparticles in the air. That means you're breathing it in. That means your lungs are getting exposed in a big way. And that means you're going to wreck your lungs immune system. And then when you get uh, infected with a virus, you're unable to fight it off. This is what I think is happening. I think glyphosate is playing a big role in COVID-19. Oh my gosh. I love that you unpacked that, that I haven't heard that. And I think that that just makes so much sense. And I, I agree. I think that you know, going green, we really have to look into what these, the agenda really is there. I mean, not that, not that I'm saying they're doing it on purpose to get glyphosate in the air, but again, we're going, we're so far removed from what we originally did, not saying that oil or petroleum or whatever is that much better, but it's obviously better in this situation. Yeah, and I think we could use the foods as, you know, the food crops as fuel. That's kind of a cool idea, really, you know, yeah. to think that we could be able to do that and not have to use the oil. But if we would just grow the food organically. So if we can just change agriculture to be organic, I think it would be a huge improvement in so many things. Autism rates would go down. Alzheimer's rates would go down. Diabetes, obesity, you know, and, and there's the various cancers that are also highly correlated. Kidney and liver disease. I mean, there's so many things that we would not. You know, we would have much less of if we simply ate organic food. It just seems to me like a no-brainer. And I wish the government would just realize that and get on board with it and stop being so favorable to the chemical industry, you know? And why do you think that they are so favorable to the chemical industry, especially Democrats, if they're also so interested in this eco-friendly movement, which is so needed right now? Why do you think that I mean, they obviously know the importance of eating organic. Michelle Obama was in there talking about I it. So why aren't, we, why aren't we making those moves? I'm curious because you at MIT, I'm curious what your colleagues think of your research because I, you know, I've heard a lot of these amazing institutions are being funded by these big pharmaceutical and chemical companies. So I'm just curious if you get any push pushback there. MIT has been good to me. I don't, um, I don't collaborate with people at MIT and there are people who are developing, you know, these new technologies that I don't approve of. But uh, I, so I have, uh, I've basically, I, I mean, I used to, when I was working in my previous um, work before I got into uh, toxic chemicals. I developed uh, spoken dialogue systems for um, allowing computers to interact with humans using natural speech, which is precursors to Amazon Echo and Siri, you know. So we, we developed the early technology that supported that kind of thing, which was really wow. fun. Um, and I loved that work. And at that time, I had a lot of collaborators and I had a lot of students. I mean, I, it was a big group, you know. But at this point, um, I'm just me. <laughs> I've stopped collaborating with anybody at MIT, but I do collaborate with lots of people around the world, actually, but just not people at MIT. And I'm trying to lay low because I'm afraid they might go after me, you know, because I'm really being very honest. Yeah, but they've been good wondering. to me. They've been good to me. My boss has not ever said anything about you can't do that or, any, you know, I've not had any restrictions on my work. No one has told me, you know, you got to be careful. I mean, maybe they should be telling me that, but they're not. <laughs> 
So I'm really pleased. MIT is a pretty liberal place, actually, I think, for unusual, you know, for outside the mainstream thinking. <laughs> I think yeah. it kind of su- supports more of that sort of thing than other schools might. And, and MIT doesn't have any funding from Monsanto, although it does have funding from Bayer. Um, I so. see. Who now owns Monsanto, obviously, but... Yeah. Unfortunately, hopefully, hopefully with research like yours and everything that's coming out, you know, this, this reframes people's perspective on all of it and it does make a difference and a huge impact. And that's why it's so important for you to speak out and, and to have the research that you do. I really appreciate it. Thank and you. and um, going back to glyphosate, um, before we move into mRNA technology, I want to talk about some of the research that you did with glycine and what happens when it gets substituted in the body by glyphosate. That's absolutely fascinating. And that was the thing that really grabbed me once I realized, I, I knew pretty early on that glyphosate was a glycine molecule. It's a, it's a very simple molecule, actually. It's a complete glycine molecule with extra material stuck onto its nitrogen atom. So it's more than glycine, but its base is a glycine and it is an amino acid. And it's what's called an amino acid analog of glycine. That's all well known. What I came to realize, and actually was, I was collaborating with Anthony Samsel, and he was in the December of, I think, 2014, maybe, I'm not sure, um, maybe 15. <laughs> I've lost track. It was in December, I remember that, that he, he said to me, you know, I wonder if uh, if glyphosate is, um, is substituting for glycine as um, in protein synthesis, I wonder if that's happening. You know, he just kind of popped that out, and I said, "Wow, you know, let's let's think about that." And um, and I had sort of assumed it couldn't because of the extra stuff on the nitrogen would, that would get in the way. But then when I started doing the research on exactly how proteins are made, I realized that, you know, the 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 uh, enzyme that picks up glycine, you know, the code. There's a DNA code, and uh, it's a four-letter code. It's quite elegant. That's the famous Watson Crick DNA code that has this four-letter code that you take it in three letters at a time. And the the three letters code for specific amino acids. And there's about 20 amino acids. Glycine is the smallest one. It has no side chains. And um, so when when proteins are made, you're working from the DNA, or actually from the RNA, which comes from the DNA. You're working from that, and you're making the proteins step by step, you know, looking at the code. And they're, they're like beads on a string. So, so you'll have a whole sequence of amino acids holding hands, if you will. And the next one comes along. The code says we need a glycine here. So then there's this enzyme that can match glycine. It, ha- it has a pocket where it perfectly fits glycine. And that's how it knows, oh, this is glycine. No side chains, you know, so very tight pocket. None of the other amino acids will fit. Well, it turns out glyphosate also has no side chains. It's just like glycine, no side chains. It fits in the pocket. The nitrogen atom is hanging outside in the air because it needs to hook up. Their paper dolls holding hands and the nitrogen needs to hook up. It can't be inside the pocket. That means the extra stuff can be there on top of the nitrogen. It won't get in the way unless you have really bulky amino acids next door. But if you've got small amino acids, especially to the left, uh, the glyphosate can fit in instead of glycine. And the assembly machinery makes a mistake and puts glyphosate into the protein. And that can be absolutely devastating for certain proteins. So the the big game, and I love a puzzle, and this was just a gigantic puzzle to go rummaging through the research literature, looking for, for example, uh, stories about people who had a mutation where the glycine got replaced by something else in the code. You know, it's an error in the code. And this person has this mutation and then they have some horrible disease, you know, so you could find proteins that were very, very sensitive to glycine substitutions at certain spots. 
And that's what I did. So I met, I eventually assembled sort of a, in my mind a set of proteins that would be likely to be susceptible to glyphosate's mixture. And it really started with the basis of the protein that it famously disrupts in the shikimate pathway. That's a pathway that all plants have. Many microbes have that pathway. It's a major biological pathway. There's a particular enzyme in the pathway called, called EPSP synthase. And glyphosate famously suppresses that enzyme to cause all plants to die. It kills all plants except for those that have been engineered with a sort of microbial version of that enzyme that's not sensitive to glyphosate. And the wow. reason why the microbial version is not sensitive is because it has changed that glycine. Its code has alanine instead of glycine at that spot. There's a particular place in the enzyme where it binds phosphate and, and the glycine gets substituted by the glyphosate. Glyphosate sticks its methylphosphonate in the spot where the phosphate of the substrate is supposed to go. This is a little bit of technical biology, but it's quite, quite fascinating to me. And then the protein can't bind phosphate anymore. And then you can find all kinds of other proteins that bind phosphate at places where there are highly conserved glycines. That's a complete pattern. In the, uh, in the research literature, tons and tons of examples of enzymes that bind phosphate at a place where glycine is absolutely essential. And they've shown you swap out the glycine, you put in something else, the, pro the protein is broken. It's completely broken. So glyphosate is doing that, I think, not just to EPSP synthase, but to a whole bunch of human enzymes that are really, really important uh, for our cells to work properly. It wrecks our metabolism. It completely derails our sulfur system. I mean, there are just many, many things that it does. And of course, it messes up the gut microbes as well, starting with the EPSP synthase that they have, which is so crucial for that pathway, which produces products that are essential to the host because we can't make them. All those ar aromatic amino acids come out of that shikimate pathway, the, the microbes produce them for the host. When the mi microbes are busted by glyphosate, those become deficient, and that causes all kinds of problems as well. I see. So the more good bacteria that we can get in our gut, like, you know, from our soil that hasn't been ruined by glyphosate, the better, because then it can help us create more of that. Right. Well, we can, we can create those. Our microbes can create those products, those aromatic amino acids, if they don't have a if that enzyme's not broken by glyphosate. So, and what are ways that we can, because, so basically what you're saying is that's happening in our plants, but then now it's happening in our bodies similarly. Uh -huh. And, and now they've introduced an MRNA technology. Like how does that play in the role of everything that's going on? Yes. Because you're saying the RNA, because we start with RNA, then when all those come together, it turns into DNA. We have, well, yeah, well, the RNA. Normally, um, the the the, uh, the dogma of biology is that DNA goes to RNA goes to protein in that order. And mm -hmm. one of the things they they boast about with the messenger RNA vaccines is that it's not DNA because the other vaccines there's these DNA vector vaccines, mm -hmm. that's the other class like Johnson Johnson. Those guys are DNA. They have the spike protein coded as DNA, and they have to go into the nucleus and integrate into the human uh, chromosomes in order to make. Um, spike protein. So that's very, very different. The messenger RNA vaccines, one of their claims to fame, one of their, they boast about the benefit is that it's not DNA, it's messenger RNA, and therefore it can't integrate into the, into the genome. But that's also a slippery statement because it turns out that messenger RNA can get converted into DNA, does get converted into DNA in human cells, and can get integrated into the, um, into the human genome. So it's a lot less likely to happen 
uh, with the messenger RNA vaccines compared to the DNA, but it's not impossible. And particularly if you have cancer, for example, if you're infected with HIV, I mean, there's there's these um, stressed um, human cells produce, tend to produce these uh, enzymes that can turn RNA into DNA. It's quite fascinating, actually, because it's part of the evolutionary process. DNA, and the body is designed this way, DNA is... Um, it's pretty uh, loyal when it copies itself. It, it usually doesn't make it doesn't make many mistakes. DNA is quite careful not to make mistakes because that's like the basic code, right? Once it goes into RNA, it it's much more likely to get mutated. RNA moves around. It, it changes much more quickly. That's why RNA viruses like the coronavirus are very adaptable because they can change RNA much faster than a DNA can change. A DNA virus can change its DNA. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so I think that the, that there's a me- cancer cells, you know, they are able to turn RNA back into DNA. And even, for example, Alzheimer's, I, I'm so fascinated. I only learned this recently. Neurons um, in Alzheimer's disease, they make extra copies of RNA uh, for the um, am- amyloid beta, which is the pro- protein that's famously disrupted in Alzheimer's. They make... Um, lots of copies of messenger RNA of the amyloid beta, and then they convert it back into DNA and they stick it back into their genome. So they actually end up with extra genetic material in their genome, all kinds of extra copies of this amyloid beta protein with different variants because they mutate it while it's in RNA and then they put it back in as a different variant. So they have all these different forms of amyloid beta in one single uh, cell, one single neuron in an Alzheimer's patient has lots of extra copies of um, amyloid beta in its genome. I mean, that's just really fascinating to me because it really, the whole evolutionary process that allows us to adapt to our environment has to do with converting DNA to RNA, letting it mutate as RNA and then putting it back into the DNA. Do you see what I'm saying? Rather than directly mutating the DNA, because I think that's just too dangerous to just allow the DNA to willy-nilly change. You want to control the conditions under which it changes rapidly are the conditions in which you have this reverse transcriptase that's able to convert RNA back into DNA. And then you let the RNA mutate all the while and then bring back the mutated form. And that's a way to get extra copies of different forms. And then eventually your cell probably works out which ones are working well, which ones aren't. So I think that that whole process of making all those extra copies in a cell, I believe that's a process of evolution you know, Darwinian evolution, to try to figure out what's the best way to do this, given that I've got these toxic exposures and this enzyme's not working correctly, can I get come up with something that works through trial and error, you know? And so that's kind of a, a very uh, interesting process that goes on with evolution. And the viruses play an enormous role in all of that. I think they are critical to the evolution of the species. And I think one of the reasons why we're having so many troubles with viruses in this century is because we have so many toxic exposures. The viruses are actually trying to figure out how to fix the problem, you know? It's yeah. really, really fascinating. And then with these mRNA vaccines, we're trying to disrupt the virus's ability exactly. to help us. <laughs> exactly. We want to play God. And so we think that we can control it, but they're obviously outsmarting us because they helped create us. And then uh, we're just... I think part of the problem, though, with I'm curious with mRNA technology and um, what I've heard. And so I would love for you to share a little bit about this. But you did say, let's say you have cancer okay, or you have cancer cells, which everyone does. Right. Cancer cells is just, you know, whether we can. I mean, it's like having good and bad bacteria right in your body. So if you have these different 
markers for either cancer or um, autoimmune or whatever right. it is, then does it exponentially get created? Well, like, oh. yeah, what I think is that the messenger RNA vaccines are going to accentuate any problems that you already have. So if you have rheumatoid arthritis, it's going to get worse. If you have a latent tumor, it's going to blossom. You know, it's going to, if you have a, a Alzheimer's, you know, the incipients of Alzheimer's or a risk towards Parkinson's, it's going to happen faster. I think it's going to accelerate neurodegenerative disease, autoimmune disease, cancer, probably also reproductive issues. I'm not sure yet, but oh, that's yeah. looking good too, because I mean, not good, but bad <laughs> yeah. because, you know, we're seeing a lot of reports of menstrual cycles getting messed up and uh, uh, spontaneous miscarriage, you know, and it goes into the ovaries. Um, it actually goes into the ovaries. I don't know if you heard that Bob Malone. Uh, have you, do you know about Bob Malone? Yeah. Well, isn't he the one that created the technology? Yes, he was one of the very early developers of the mRNA technology, and he's speaking out very loudly against these vaccines. He's quite worried. And um, one of the things he's talked about is that there was a um, study commissioned by uh, Japan, I think, insisted on having, uh, I think it was a Pfizer study that was done in Japan where they wanted to know where does the mRNA go, you know. So they're telling us, oh, yeah, you shoot it in the arm, it stays in the arm, the immune cells come in, they see the spike protein that's being produced from the message RNA, they react to it, they tell, they, they get the machinery going to make the antibodies, and now you, you're good to go, everything's great. You know, that's kind of the storyline, right? Yeah. Everything stays in the muscle. Well, that's not true at all. The... Uh, it's quite interesting what happens in reality because you know the muscle, the, the the vaccine has this cationic lipid, which is which is gonna. It's like a, aluminum. It's like the aluminum in the other vaccines. It makes the immune system stand up and notice, you know, because it's it's toxic. The cationic lipid is toxic, and that that brings in the immune cells. So the immune cells come into the muscle. That's muscle cells are picking up this this thing, and they start making spike protein. They can't stop themselves because the whole thing is designed to just be a machine to make spike protein and make it fast too by the way and making it fast also means you can make errors more likely to make errors so different versions of the spike protein and then the muscles display it on their surface and the immune cells see that spike protein and they react with a you know they can become activated and they take up the messenger RNA as well because it's still sitting there in the muscle tissue the immune cells that come in they take it up once they take it up they're mobile so they can just leave and they do leave they think oh my god I got to show this to the T cells and the B cells we got to get antibodies when they go into the lymph system and they get into the lymph nodes under the arms and you can see them swelling in many cases that's a sign usually of cancer breast breast cancer but the lymph nodes under the arm sometimes for many people swell after the vaccine because the immune cells are going in there and then they travel through the lymph system and they go to many interesting places and that's what this Bob Malone showed from the study that was done in Japan they went the highest level of the organs was the spleen which is very interesting to me and we wrote I, I you know I wrote a paper together with Greg Nye on these messenger RNA uh, vaccines and we've talked a lot about this going into the spleen and um, which is really um you know, grand central for making antibodies. So they love it. The the, um, the vaccine makers' total focus is on getting high levels of antibodies to spike protein. That's their goal. And they succeed extremely well. But that should not be their goal. What they have is the wrong goal. That's what I believe. It's not the right way to solve this problem, to make huge numbers of antibodies to spike. Spike is the toxic piece of the, of the virus. And antibodies to spike are going to be, um, you know, really uh, trigger autoimmune disease because it has many sequences that are similar to sequences in various human proteins that are um, 
that are associated with various autoimmune diseases. So that's a whole other problem there. But that goes into the spleen, it goes into the ovaries. So in this data, in the data from the Japanese study, spleen had the highest levels and the ovaries were not far behind. So lots of it is going into the ovaries. And that's just really frightening because that's, of course, you know, not a place where you want to start introducing inflammation and having immune cells coming in and have toxic spike protein being released. I can't imagine what kind of damage that's going to do to reproduction, you know? I mean, I know plenty of people that have had their periods changing, have had spontaneous miscarriage, whether they've just from getting the vaccine and and no one's really putting two and two together because people are just, you know, shutting them down and gaslighting them basically. But it's really easy to tell what's going on. But I'm curious because I would say... Um, so people who are choosing not to be vaccinated, I'm curious if they can be exposed and have this sort of technology in their body, basically um, being just creating the spike protein in their body by just, let's say, having sex with someone that had the vaccine. I know. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Do you uh, have sperm, to know that's well, the sperm, Yeah, the sperm have that ACE2 receptor, which, you know, can take up the virus. So they're certainly concerned that the virus would go into the sperm. And uh, the sperm also take up messenger RNA. I actually found an absolutely fascinating paper that talked, and this was from quite a while ago, long before COVID, um, the sperm take up foreign messenger RNA, which is what's in these vaccines, they convert it into DNA and they produce plasmids, they're little pellets that contain that DNA, and they d- deliver those plasmids to the fertilized egg. And the fertilized egg takes them up. And those plasmids are little autonomous DNA factories for, in, in the case of spike protein, in the case of the vaccine, it would be that the egg would now have the capability of making spike protein. And that could be sustained throughout the lifespan of that individual and on passed on to its offspring. It was really, truly an amazing paper. I read, read all about this in a single paper. It wasn't about spike. It was about foreign messenger RNA. But that's what spike is, foreign messenger RNA taken up by the sperm, converted into DNA, put into these plasmids. And the plasmids can, can reproduce themselves. They're sort of autonomous units of chromosomes that are not part of your human DNA. They're separate. But, oh they're, but they're there. And so that embryo that's done this is going to think spike is a human protein. It's going to evolve. It's going to be born thinking that spike is not a threat and it won't develop any antibodies to spike. So when that person wow. gets exposed to the disease, they're going to be a carrier. I mean, if they don't react to it, I don't know what's going to happen as far as their health, <laughs> but they will be able to spread disease quite, quite well because they won't be able to fight it off. So in that scenario, I'm curious if... Um, uh, you said sperm. What about saliva? Does that work similarly? Do you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we would have to study, but I would guess so. I mean, I I don't know. Uh, the thing I've worried about is something called exosomes, which we wrote about it in our paper. Um, by the way, the paper is Dr. Greg Nye. He's a Senef and Nye. Those are the two authors. And it's, it's uh, the title starts out worse than the disease question mark. So I think if you search Instead of nigh worse than the disease, you could find it on the web. IJVTPR is the uh, is the journal where it was published, and uh, we worked hard on that paper, and I'm quite proud of it because we predicted things actually that are now happening. We talked a lot about how the vaccine we thought we were we didn't know because it hadn't been at the time we wrote it. It wasn't it wasn't known yet. That, and of course, they're not necessarily saying this is what's happening, but this is what I think is happening is that the vaccine is driving the emergence of all these variants that we're having so much trouble with now. Exactly. Um, yeah. 
yeah, I think the vaccines are the source of it. And of course, they're blaming, they love to blame the unvaccinated for all the problems, but it's really the vaccines that are driving the virus. The virus is smart. And once, when you ha- vaccinate someone who is immune compromised, you force their body to make antibodies that they can't use because your immune system is so sick. It doesn't, it, it's not effective to clear the virus, even though they have those antibodies. The virus gets an up close and personal look at the antibodies. It knows exactly how to change in order to resist the antibodies. So a person who is with a compromised immune system with antibodies is extremely dangerous in terms of allowing the virus to evolve into a more perfect form that it doesn't bind as well to the neutralizing antibodies, but binds better to the enhancing antibodies. And you actually have antibodies in both classes. And what, and what studies have shown is that as, so the virus, the vaccine produces a fantastic level of antibodies, like 10 times as high as what you would get if you caught the disease, which I find very suspicious. I would not want to have all those antibodies in my body attacking my, my joints and my, my, my myelin sheath, you know, because that's what they'll do. 10 times as high, but then they fade quite rapidly. And that's been shown in studies that the antibodies produced by the vaccine fade very quickly. When they get down to a certain level, other studies have shown that once the antibody levels drop, that's when antibody-dependent enhancement starts to kick in. And that's where the vaccine can actually make you more susceptible to symptoms from the disease than the people who are unvaccinated. So I'm suspecting, and I hope I'm wrong, that I'm suspecting we're going to have a very difficult fall coming up because the vaccine... Many of the vaccinated people are starting to have their antibodies drop to a level where they're unable to resist the disease. And we're seeing lots and lots of breakthrough infections right now. And I think it's going to eventually be that they will not. Right now, they're getting a benefit. It looks like that the vaccinated are getting milder cases. And that they've been saying that a lot, you know, that it's milder cases. But um, I don't think that's going to stay that way. I think it's going to gradually be the case that more and more vaccinated people will be getting in the hospital and dying. And it'll start eventually become the point where those who had been vaccinated six, seven months, months before are worse off than the people who hadn't been vaccinated at all. That's what I'm predicting. And I don't know if that's going to come true or not, but that's the way I see it. Yeah. And so I'm curious because now they're trying to get people to get the booster shot, probably for that reason. But it just sounds like a bad idea to me. So I'm, I'm curious what your thought is on that with in terms of the antibodies then, because it sounds I know. like, yeah, no, I, it's a really bad situation that we're in. If you're going to play the game and accept the vaccines, are you going to get a booster shot every six months? I mean, maybe people think that's fine, but those shots are very dangerous. We're seeing some horrendous uh, side effects from these vaccines, as you know, right? You've probably seen the various Uh, things that are breaking through on the web that they keep on trying to suppress. I mean, it goes up and then it gets taken down, right? Tremendous suppression of the information about these horrendous side effects that we're seeing. And of course, there's the heart disease problem, which is happening to teenagers. And of course, that I don't know if you heard, but Pfizer thinks they've now got, you know, proof that it's okay for five-year-olds. It just breaks my heart to think about five-year-olds getting one of these vaccines. They're so Mm -hmm. horrible. And in Cuba, two-year-olds are getting these vaccines. Oh, is that right? I didn't know yeah. that. Oh, are they getting this mRNA vaccines or something else? I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming mRNA just because that's the one that people just think is the most safe. Yeah, that's so ridiculous. I, I mean, know. it's just incredible that they, I, I can't, um, I, I just can't stomach. I just can't imagine how they could be so reckless, how they could be so confident that this is going to work, you know, to force it on, on the, they want the entire world to be vaccinated. They're just like, they're obsessed with it. And I just don't understand how so many people could believe 
that this is not a completely reckless adventure that we're in right now with, you know, just reckless abandon about whatever's going to happen to us in the future. We just don't care. Because I, I just feel the risk is obvious for, for neurodegenerative disease, autoimmune disease, cancer. I think all of those things are going to go up. But that's similar to how war makes money. I think that that's what they're going for. I mean, causing these people to have autoimmune conditions, to have ASL, to have autism and obesity and other chronic conditions just makes them more money. I know. I really, it took me a long time to finally accept that. It's been a long journey for me, you know. Yeah. I've never been fond of pharma. I've never been fond of them. But um, I've seen damage that they've done way back, you know, with, with various drugs uh, that are just really toxic. And um, But I, I couldn't quite, imagine until it finally just made sense that as long as we're sick they make money and that's so simple so who cares if we get sick right they make yeah money. it's good for the economy and so <laughs> it's so sad and so when it comes to something as simple as moving towards a more organic agriculture more organically grown agriculture than having glyphosate and and i know that there's also another i don't remember what it's called but there's something else that has an active ingredient that's like 50 percent agent orange i'm sure you know about yes, it 24d 24d yeah, is a component of agent in, orange i live in newport beach and uh-huh. apparently it's one of the most toxic places to live when it comes to um spraying and uh-huh. get sprayed on our lawns. I mean, I don't have, but on the parks and stuff. And so it's just devastating what, you know, I know it's so amazing that we can't uh, own up to this and just recognize that we have to get away from toxic chemicals. And you know, the chemical industry and the pharma industry are basically the same thing now, right? I mean, Bayer owns Monsanto. So they produce these toxic chemicals. They put it in the food. We get sick. They produce these toxic drugs that we take for the rest of our life to, to, to deal with our various diseases. It's a, it's a wonderful circle for them, and they, they've teamed up, you know. Do you think that it's a political thing, or do you think that both parties are, you know, every, just everyone is, is supporting? I'm just amazed that the government, the government can be bought. I mean, they really dump a lot of money into the government and basically corrupt them, you know, so that they just can't even think straight anymore. Um, I, I am really disappointed that we don't have more people in the government who see what's happening and who just stand up to them and say no, despite all the money that they're being offered. They just say no. You know, yeah. I think you kind of can't survive in government unless you take their money. There's so much, you know, you depend on, on money to to, um, to succeed in government. And so yeah. you just you drink the Kool-Aid and then you're just um, you don't mind that you're poisoning your population. That's the part I just don't get because I don't understand how these people can stand back there and watch all these children getting so sick. And then, you know, the vaccines is another story with just all these vaccines that we're giving to our children today and how sick they are and how it's several papers have come out now that have shown that the, uh, these diseases are correlated with the vaccines, you know, that the kids who are unvaccinated are so much healthier than the ones who aren't. And yet, you know, we just, you can't get that message through because the vaccine industry is so powerful. Yeah, they just suppress the information and all they repeat is vaccines are safe and effective. Vaccines I know, that's such effective. a mantra, isn't it? And especially these mRNA vaccines are safe and effective. <laughs> I wouldn't love them, of course, they're safe and effective. You just hear that, it just makes, it makes me cringe. And then you see all these, did you know there was a... Um, 
a post on Facebook um, by some media, a major media outlet. I don't remember whether it was ABC, but there was a post on Facebook from a major media outlet asking for um, people to um, to say to, to provide information about any anyone they knew, any loved one they knew who wasn't vaccinated, who died from COVID nineteen, or who had major. Wow. And the response was enormous numbers of responses talking about the vaccines. It was so wonderful. Did you hear about that? I didn't. I, no, that's, I'll see if I can find it. I'll send you the link because that was just incredible. It was it totally backfired. It went right off right away was on the vaccines and it didn't stop. And there were like thousands of responses of people, testimonies about people getting harmed by the vaccines. And wow. of course, Facebook probably is reluctant to take down you know, some I major know. major mainstream news uh, outlets. So they're kind of stuck with this one, I think. I'm going to be That's curious hilarious. to see whether they can find a way to, to kill it, you know. I need to see it. But yeah, I think that it's really interesting now with all this data and what people have experienced. I mean, I read there was um, an eight-hour hearing on whether the FDA was going to approve the booster shot or not. And then um, I saw that it was like a 16 to two vote where they mm-hmm. didn't want to I heard about that too. And Steve Kirsch, Steve Kirsch is a friend of mine and he was, he had important testimony at that, that I think. Yeah. 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 And, and they were saying, I mean, apparently what was being said is people have 71 times more likely to have a heart attack because of this vaccine and, and it's killing more people than it's saving lives. And they were all giving their testimonies and, but then I read another headline like, oh, they expect it to go through in the next week or something like that. Right. So they, they did. It was really great that they did that two to 16. And then I, but then I think they did follow up with, oh yeah, booster shots are needed for like people over 65. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's just yeah. really devastating what they're, what they're recommending. And, and then, you know, people that, people just don't have access to the information because they're suppressing it. So it just becomes a really heated topic when you do talk to people about it at the dinner table or with your family. I know. And your family members often shut you up, right? They're like, I don't want to yeah. hear it. Exactly. <laughs> and they think you're crazy. It's just, it's really been tremendous polarizing uh, influence in families and really kind of broken families apart, I think. Oh, definitely. I was, when I was pregnant, I mean, I just had my baby, you met her over Zoom or what we're recording on. And, and so I had to actually tell family members that I would like to refrain from them because they received the vaccine and it's an experiment. Yeah. And I don't want to be around them. Well, I want to make sure I have a baby full term that's super healthy. And so I actually refrained from seeing them for months once they got the vaccine until we haven't seen them. We're about to see them. She's two months old. And now I have to have the conversation. Oh, about- yes. Wow. <laughs> just make sure they're not going to get it and I, they think I'm crazy but they don't want to say anything because they want to see our family That's so I think so it's really interesting yeah, yeah. it'll be interesting to see what happens but you know it's I think it, and I think that the important thing here to remember obviously is not acting like basically what Biden's doing which is blaming the unvaccinated for the pandemic and I don't want to do that to the other side and I want to you know, not let mm-hmm. this divide us, but it's also really important to to stay grounded in our own well being and know what's best for us until we figure out what's going on. Like you said, we right. don't know. I think your predictions are probably going to come true, and which is so sad. Yeah, I mean, I really hope not, but I, I I don't feel good about the future and what's coming. And at what point will they finally acknowledge that the vaccines are failing? I don't know because they're so vested in it. You know, 
Yeah, they keep on so finding many- a way to excuse the vaccines and not blame them. It's very frustrating. I know. But it's really frustrating, yeah. I think that at least what people can do, whether they're vaccinated or not, is to advocate for the glyphosate not being sprayed in our neighborhoods and our parks and and to make sure to eat organic food. And um, one last thing that I wanted to mention, I don't know if you saw, but University of Riverside, just someone, I don't know, some researchers there just received a $500,000 grant to try and inject mRNA technology into plants to vaccinate the plants so that we eat the plants. Oh my God. I know that's the thing about the messenger RNA technology. They've been developing it for a long time and they have had a hurdle of trying to get it past the hump of of human acceptance. And this is a, I think they feel this is a wonderful windfall to force mRNA technology onto us to get us convinced that it's something good. And then to roll out all kinds of different mRNA um, drugs, you know, administered through vaccines. I think it's a, it's a field day for them in terms of their belief that, I mean, I think there must be people who really believe this technology is fantastic and it's going to, you know, cure cancer. I mean, I think there really are people who believe that. And I just think they're misguided. I mean, I know people that believe that. So it's really terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? But you really wish that the government, I don't see how the government can mandate something that's not yet approved. And of course, as I say that, if it does get approved, I don't want them to ever be able to mandate anything. I feel like everyone should have personal choice, you know? Yeah, I believe the same. Especially injecting a poison into your body. You should have the right to say no to that. Yeah. And so hopefully with more and more people coming out and talking about their um, their choice and not getting vaccinated, I think it empowers others to speak up to. And, and so that's why your research is so important. And I really appreciate you speaking up about things and, and not feeling like you can't, especially when you're tied to such a large institution. I think it's really great. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a hard you. battle to fight, isn't it? <laughs> we will prevail in the end, I believe, but I don't know how long it's going to take and what kind of you know, catastrophe we're going to have at that point when we finally are victorious, what, what the world yeah. will look like. I know. Well, hopefully things start to you know look up sooner than later. We'll see. I sure happens. hope so. Yeah. I feel like we're on the, on the cusp of a breakthrough. Don't you feel that way? I really do too. Yeah, I really do. I so we'll true. have to, we'll have to sign back on and chat with each other soon and see what has changed and what we think about things later on. But I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy that my daughter was um, just sitting here and super. <laughs> She's so, so super. What a great child you have. Congratulations <laughs> on the baby. That's so wonderful. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for joining us.